Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, Section 22. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 9. To Agordo and Primiero, Part 1. Having risen literally with the dawn, we are on the road next morning before six, bound for a gordo. The Pezzies gather about the house-door to see us off. The Austrian officer who lodges over the way, and soothes his customs-laden soul by perpetually torturing a cracked zitter, leans out in his shirt-sleeves from a second-floor window to see us mount. He is already smoking his second, if not his third, meerschaum, and only pauses now and then to twirl his moustache with that air of serene contempt for every one but himself, which so eminently distinguishes him. It takes some little time to strap on the bags, to say good-bye, and to induce Dark Nestle to receive me upon any terms. He has a hypocritical way of standing quite still till the very moment Giuseppe is about to put me up, and then suddenly ducks away, to my immense discomfiture and the undisguised entertainment of the neighbourhood. When this performance has been repeated some six or seven times, he is hustled into a corner and pinned against the wall by main force, while I mount ignominiously at last by the help of a chair. The road to Sansaniga lies by way of Alleghi, so that for the first five miles or so it is all familiar ground. The air feels fresh, but the sky is already one blaze of cloudless sunlight. The Civita rises before us in shadowy splendor. The larks are singing, as I had thought they never sang anywhere save on the Campanaga, between Rome and Tivoli. Between forty and fifty bronzed and bare-legged peasants are collecting floating timber this morning at the head of the lake. Some wade, some pilot rough rafts of tree-trunks loosely lashed together, some stand on the banks and draw the logs to shore by means of long boat-hooks. One active fellow sits his pine-trunk as if it were a horse, and paddles it to shore with uncommon dexterity. The whole scene is highly picturesque and amusing, and the men, with their shirt-sleeves rolled above their elbows, and their trousers above their knees, look just like Neapolitan fishermen. Every now and then they all join in a shrill, prolonged cry, which adds greatly to the wildness of the effect. Skirting the borders of the lake, we draw nearer every moment to the lower cliffs of the Civita, and arrive at the scene of the great Bergfall of 1771, a wilderness of fallen rocks, like the battleground of the Titans. Somewhere beneath these mountains of debris lie the two buried villages. No one any longer remembers exactly where they stood, nor even which of the four they were. That Alleghi lay near the middle of the present water seems to be the only fact about which every one is confident. A solitary white house, half Podere, half Albergio, stands on a hill just above the point where the Cardevole, swelled by all the torrents of the Civita, rushes out at the lower end of the lake and pours impetuously down the steep and narrow gorge leading to Sansanegi. Here the path, after being carried for a long way high on the mountainside, gradually descends to the level of the river, crossing and recrossing it continually by means of picturesque wooden bridges. Here, too, an adder, sunning itself on a heap of stones by the wayside, wiggles away at our approach, and is speedily killed by Clementi, 
who skips about and flourishes his stick like a maniac. Meanwhile a tremendous southwest wind blows up the gorge like a hurricane, without in any way mitigating the pitiless blaze of the sun overhead, or the glare which is flung up at a white heat from the road underfoot. At length, about 10.30 a.m., we arrive in sight of Cincinnati, a small village in the open flat just between the Val Cordeval and the Val de Canali. The Monte Pelsa, which is in fact a long, wild buttress of the Civita, the Cima di Pape, a volcanic peak 8,239 feet in height, and the southward ridge of the Monte Pesa, enclose it in a natural amphitheatre, the central area of which is all fertile meadowland traversed by long lines of feathery poplars. Putting up here for a couple of hours at a poor little inn in the midst of the village, we are glad to take refuge from the wind and sun in a stuffy upstairs room, while the men dine and the mules feed, and where we take luncheon. One soon learns not rashly to venture on strange meats and drinks in these remote villages. We now habitually provide ourselves before starting in the morning with fresh bread and hard-boiled eggs, and so, on arriving at a new place, ask only for cheese, wine, and a fresh lettuce from the garden. The cheese is not often very palatable, and we generally give the wine to the men, but as something must be ordered and paid for, the purpose is answered. When we are unusually tired or minded to indulge in luxuries, we light the Etna and treat ourselves to Liebig soup or tea. Beyond Cincinnati, the character of the scenery changes suddenly. It is still the Val Cordeval, but is wholly unlike its former pastoral self, either above or below Capriol. Barren precipices, scarred by a thousand bergfalls, close in the narrow way. Fallen boulders of enormous bulk lie piled everywhere in grand and terrible confusion, while the road is again and again cut through huge barricades of solid debris. Frequent wayside crosses repeat the old tragic story of sudden death. The torrent, chafed and tormented by a thousand obstacles, rages below. Wild, dolomitic peaks start up here and there, are seen for a moment, and then vanish. A blind beggar-woman, curled up with her crutches in the recesses of a painted shrine by the roadside, uplifts a wailing voice at our approach. All is mournful, all is desolate. By and by the gorge widens, the great twin towers of Monte Lucano and the splintered peaks of Monte Pise come into sight, and, like a rapid change of scene upon a mighty stage, a sunny Italian valley, rich in vines and chestnuts and fields of Indian corn, opens out before us. From thence the road, winding now in shade, now in sunshine, traverses a country which would be as thoroughly southern as the inland parts about Naples, were it not that the houses in every little village are decorated in the Tyrolean way, with half-obliterated frescoes of Madonnas and saints. Large rambling farmhouses built over gloomy arches peopled by pigs, poultry, and children, enliven the landscape with an air of slovenly prosperity, quite companion. A wayside osteria hangs out the traditional withered bough, and announces in letters a foot long, Buonacqua gratis, e vendita di buon vino. Good water for nothing, and good wine for sale. By and by a scattered town, and an important new-looking church and a dome, and two small cupolas come into sight at the far end of the valley. This is a gordo, an archdeaconry, and the capoluogo, or chief place of the district. 
Two long, last sultry miles of dusty flat, and we are there. A large albergo at the upper end of the piazza is as big at least as Trafalgar Square, and receives us on arrival. A pretentious, comfortless place, with an arcade and a café on the ground floor, and no end of half-furnished upper rooms. Being ushered upstairs by a languid damsel with an enormous chignon, for there seems to be neither master, mistress, nor waiter about the place, we take possession of a whole empty floor looking to the front, and ask, of course, the tired traveller's first question. What can we have for dinner? The answer to this inquiry comes in astounding form of a regular bill of fare. We can have anything from soup to ices if we choose, so, in an evil hour, we order a real dinner to consist of several courses, including trout and a boiled chicken. We even talk vaguely of spending a day or two in a gordo for the longer enjoyment of such luxurious quarters. In the meantime, having rested, we stroll out to see the town. Strange to say there is no town, there is only the piazza. Houses enough there may be possibly to make a town, if one could only bring them together and arrange them within reasonable limits. But here they show as a mere brick-and-mortar fringe, thinly furnishing three sides of a great desolate enclosure, where all the children and all the stray dogs and all the palo players must do congregate. Three sides only, for the fourth is wholly occupied by Count Manzoni's dilapidated villa, with its unpainted shutters, its curtainless windows, and its outside multitude of tenth-rate gods and goddesses, which crowd the skyline of the façade like an army of acrobats and ballet girls in stone. The church, a modern work in the Renaissance style designed by Segusini, stands near the hotel at the upper or eastern end of the piazza. The door being open, we lift the heavy leathern curtain and walk in, but it is like walking into chaos and old night. Every blind is down, every avenue is closed against the already fading daylight. A capuchin monk and some three or four women kneel here and there, more shadowy than the shadows. A lamp burns dimly before the high altar, a few tapers flare before the shrine of the Madonna, faint gleams of gilding, outlines of frescoes, of altarpieces, of statues are indistinctly visible. To gain any idea of the decorations, or even of the proportions of the church, is so impossible that we defer it altogether till to-morrow, and make instead the tour of the piazza. Having done this, and having peeped into a very narrow, dirty, back street running up the hill behind the town, we come home, home being the albergo of the Miniere, to dinner. And here I should observe that the house is so called after the copper, lead, and zinc mines that form the commercial treasure of the district. These mines, lying at the mouth of the Val Imperina, about two miles from Agordo, belonged formerly to the Republic of Venice, and are now government property. Of the wealth of their resources there seems to be but one opinion. Yet the works are carried on so parsimoniously that the net profit seldom exceeds five hundred thousand lira, or about two thousand English per pound. A quicksilver mine near Gosalda, about six miles off in another direction, worked by a private company, is reported to pay better. Did I say that we came home to dinner? Ah, well, it was a sultry, languid evening. There was thunder in the air, and happily we were not very hungry. I will not dwell upon the melancholy details. 
Enough if I observe that the boiled chicken not only came to the table in its headdress of feathers like an African sheaf in grand tenue, but also with its internal economy quite undisturbed. The rest of the dishes were conceived and carried out in the same spirit. Non ragonum de lor, etc., etc., for my own part, I believe to this day that the cook was a raving maniac. That dream of spending a day or two at Agordo vanished in the course of dinner. We resolved to push on as quickly as possible for Primiero, and so, as soon as the cloth was removed, sent for Giuseppe and ordered the mules to be at the door by half-past six the next morning. That night there came a tremendous storm, the heaviest we had yet had. It began suddenly with a peal of thunder just over the roof of the hotel, and then continued to lighten and thunder incessantly for more than half an hour before any rain fell. The lightning seemed to run slantwise along the clouds in jagged streams, and to end each time with a plunge straight down into the earth. These streams of electric fluid were in themselves blinding white, but the light they flashed over the landscape was of a brilliant violet, as rich in color as a burst of Bengal light. I never saw anything to equal the vividness of that violet light, or the way in which it not only stripped the darkness from the great mountains on the opposite side of the valley, but brought out with intense distinctness every separate leaf upon the trees, every tile upon the farthest housetops, and every blade of grass in the piazza below. These flashes for the first ten minutes followed each other at intervals of not longer than fifteen seconds, and sometimes at intervals of five, so that it almost seemed as if there were flashes of darkness as well as flashes of light. The church bells, as usual, were rung as long as the storm lasted, but the thunder peals overlapped each other so continually, and were echoed and re-echoed in such a grand way from the amphitheatre of mountains around about, that one only heard them now and then for a moment. By and by, at the end of perhaps forty minutes, there came a deafening final explosion, as if a mountain had blown up, and after that heavy rain, and only rain, till about two o'clock a.m. At half-past six, however, when we rode out of Agordo, the weather was as brilliant as ever. Long fleets of white clouds were sailing overhead before the wind. The air had that delicious freshness that follows a thunderstorm in summer. The trees, the grass, the wildflowers, even the mountains, looked as if their colors had just been dashed with a wet brush, and so left for the sun to dry them. Our way lay across the Cordeval Bridge, and then up a steep path, very narrow, partly paved, and shaded on both sides by barberry bushes, wild briars all in bloom, and nut-trees already thick with clusters of new fruit. Monte Lucano, in form like a younger brother of the Pelmo, towered high into the morning mists on the one hand, and the wild peaks of Monte Piz and Monte Aniera peered out fitfully now and then upon the other. Thus we reached and passed Voltago, a picturesque village surrounded by green fir woods and slopes of Indian corn. In the valley below gleamed Agordo with its white dome, and against the eastern horizon rose the pinky peaks of Monte Lastier, the shadowy ridge of Monte Pramper, and the strange, solitary needle called the Gisela de Vescova, like a warning finger pointing to the sky. Next came a cherry country, thick with orchards full of scarlet fruit, then a romantic ravine called the Val Molina, then the scattered village of Frasene, with its little church in the midst of a mountain prairie, surrounded by fir woods. 
Who would dream of finding a pianoforte manufactory in such a lost corner of the hills, or a maker of violins and contrabassi a little way lower down at Voltago? Yet at Frasene, one Giuseppe Dalla Lucia turns out pianos of respectable repute, and the fiddles, little and big, of Valentino Conadora of Voltago, are said to be of unusual excellence. And now, as we ride across this space of pleasant meadowland, the mists part suddenly overhead, and reveal a startling glimpse of three enormous pallid obelisks, apparently miles high against the blue. These are the peaks of the Sasso di Campo, one of the Primiero giants, as yet unascended, and estimated by Ball at something little short of ten thousand feet above the level of the sea. The mists part and close again, the peaks stand out for one moment in brilliant sunshine, and then melt like things of air. It is our first and last sight of the Sasso di Campo. The path, always rising, now winds through a wooded district, stony but shady, the haunt of gorgeous butterflies. Higher still it becomes a tunnel of greenery, only just wide and high enough for man and mule. The larches meet and rustle overhead, tiny falls trickle deliciously from rock to rock, and gush every now and then across the path while the banks on each side are tapestried all over with rich mosses, wild strawberries, and pendant festoons of osmunda oak and beech ferns. If the footway were not so steep and slippery, and the work so heavy for the mules, no place could be imagined more delicious on a day like this, for it grows hotter every hour as the sun climbs and the vapors roll away. But the pull is too long and too difficult, and the path in many places resolves itself into a mere broken staircase of wet rock, up which the two nestles, though riderless, clamor and struggle with the utmost difficulty. End of section 22